the Lord dwelt with Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Please pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, we ask you to join us here in this place this morning, and we trust that you have kept your promise to us and are here now. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In the aftermath of the Tower of Babel, after the Lord has dispersed the descendants of Noah across the face of the earth, Genesis refocuses. It returns from the grand scope of all the world's inhabitants back to God's chosen family. Chapter 11 of Genesis ends with a genealogy of Shem's descendants. Shem being one of Noah's sons. In the seventh generation after Shem, a man named Terah fathers three sons, Haran, Nahor, and Abram. And then in Genesis chapter 11, verse 29, we have the introduction of Terah's sons' wives. And Abram and Nahor took wives, it says. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. And then in verse 30, we are given a specific detail about Abram's wife. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. Now, I want to say two quick things about this seeming aside before we get into the good news about God's grace and provision for Abraham and Sarah later in their lives and what it says about God's grace and provision for us all these years later. And the first thing I want to say is that it's no coincidence that we are told immediately upon Sarah's introduction to the story that she's barren. Moses, as he's putting together these stories, Moses knows where we are headed. He knows about Ishmael and Isaac. He knows that God is going to bring a great family out of Abraham and Sarah. This is literary foreshadowing. But it's not just foreshadowing because Moses is also making a theological point here. He knows For instance, about the creation story that we read a couple of weeks ago. He knows that the earth was once a formless void and God moved over the face of the deep and spoke creation into existence with a word. Moses knows that this is how God commonly works, creating something from nothing, which is exactly what he's going to do with Sarah's barren womb. But what Moses doesn't know anything about, what he only can imagine the outline of because of God's promises, Moses doesn't know about what's going to happen after his own life is over. He doesn't know anything, for instance, about Ezekiel and his vision of the valley of dry bones. And he certainly doesn't know anything about the empty tomb on Easter morning. But Moses is calling attention here at the very beginning to the way God works. 
and to the way God will always work, bringing life out of death. The other thing I want to draw your attention to here is where this piece of information comes. It comes at the end of a genealogy. Again, this is not accidental. Moses knows where the story is going. But as a narrative device, it packs a punch here. Eight generations of so-and-so begat so-and-so and and -and so-and-so lived for however many hundreds of years. Begat, begat, begat. This story is all about life and generations and family. And then, bam, Abram marries Sarai and she is barren. End of the line, right? Well, since you know where the story goes too, you know not so fast. Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abram, Abraham by this point, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. So God appears to Moses at least at first, in the form of three visiting gentlemen whom Abraham welcomes generously. And one of the men tells him that the next time he visits, Sarah is going to have a son. And Sarah, listening to their conversation at the tent flap, laughs. Because remember, she's barren. But then something interesting happens. At this moment when Sarah laughs, all pretense of these Three men visiting is dropped. And we have a direct conversation between Abraham and God. The Lord said to Abraham. We no longer have these three visitors. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the set time, I will return to you in due season and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, oh yes, you did laugh. I love that we then say the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And we all know what happens in the story. God keeps his promise. I began this sermon with a quote from chapter 21. The Lord dealt with Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to his son whom Sarah bore him. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old. And as God had commanded him, Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Now, Sarah said, God has brought laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have ever said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Who would have ever said? Well, God Almighty said it. God Almighty made a promise and came through. This is our God at work, bringing something out of nothing, life, out of death, a family, a great family, out of a barren womb. And in a certain sense, this is the work of God that we gather to celebrate every Sunday. New life in Christ for sinners like us that Jesus brought out of crucifixion 
and death. And today, we're celebrating this same work of God, this same act of bringing something out of nothing, bringing life out of death in holy baptism. And Sarah's barren womb is actually a great metaphor for what we're doing here. These kids, like Sarah, are barren. Now, not barren in terms of fertility, but barren in terms of righteousness, of deserving, of worthiness. Because it's not like Abraham and Sarah are showing any particular worthiness, faithfulness, or trust, is it? We're in Genesis 18 here, three chapters after Genesis 15, in which God has already promised Abraham that his descendants will inherit the land from the river in Egypt to the great river Euphrates, a promise that he has sealed in this powerful ceremony, this one-sided ceremony during which he, God himself, in the form of a smoking fire pot, passes alone between slaughtered animals, proving the lengths to which he will go to keep this promise. In fact, God has been promising Abraham offspring, a family, even a nation, regularly, over and over, ever since calling him in the first place. If you read Genesis 12, where Abram is introduced and following, pretty much every interaction that Abraham has with God involves God reconfirming his promise that Abraham will have a family and that he will be a father to a great nation. And yet, despite the years of promises, Sarah laughs. She still doesn't believe it. But as embarrassing as that is, Sarah's laughter is not the lowest ebb her faith has seen, is it? It is Sarah who, figuring that God couldn't keep this promise, gave her servant Hagar to Abraham as a wife so that a child could be born and a family created. It was Sarah who tried to accomplish for her own family, for herself, what God had promised to provide. What only God can provide. Isn't this so often the human enterprise? Isn't this so often what we spend our lives Doing. Ever since sin entered in Eden, we have been suspicious of God's ability to keep his promises. And so we seek to accomplish for ourselves what God has already promised to provide for us. This is what self-justification means. God has promised that on account of and in Jesus Christ, we are made right with him. And yet, we humans within the church and without, struggle on our own to reach a place where we might be able to lay our heads down at night and think that everything will be okay. We are striving, striving to get something that only God can give. And for us Christians, we are striving to get something that we already have. Abraham and Sarah had God's promise. And God's promise is solid as a rock. I have a friend who tells a story about 
tearing his house apart, yelling angrily at his wife and children, looking for a set of keys that turned out to be in his pocket the whole time. He was driving himself crazy, looking for something that he already had. This is what we do. Because we forget or don't believe that our God is a promise keeper. That's what the story of Abraham and Sarah at the Oaks of Mamre is all about. And the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that he is not just a promise keeper, but that he is in fact a promise keeper in the face of our promise breaking. That's what we've gathered together this morning to celebrate with these families and these children. In worship, week by week, and profoundly at baptism, we are admitting to ourselves and to God and to the gathered community and to anyone who will listen that we are by our nature faithless, like Sarah, prone to doubt that God will keep his promises. We so readily return to the Hagars of our lives, thinking that if anything is going to happen for us, we're going to have to make it happen on our own. In this sense, Sarah is our patron saint. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the set time, I will return to you in due season and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied, saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. I love this. This is so human. She laughs audibly, visibly, in his face, and still tries to deny it. That's the human condition right there in a nutshell. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Of course not, we say. But in our hearts, so often, we laugh. And then we deny that we laugh. We are desperate sinners, each one of us like Sarah, in need of a good news that can find us in our sin. And it is just this kind of good news that we have. As St. Paul writes in Romans 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God does these things, bringing life out of death, showing us his love for us in Christ while we are sinners, while we are laughing like Sarah, while we are denying like Peter. I did not laugh, says Sarah. I am not one of Jesus' friends, said Peter. I'm just fine on my own, we protest. Like Peter's faith and Sarah's womb, we are like Ezekiel's dry bones, dead, barren, with nothing to commend ourselves. And yet, as the biblical story attests again and again, this is precisely where God works, bringing something out of nothing, life out of death, a family out of a barren womb, and giving righteousness and eternal life to sinners. That's how these children will approach this basin this morning.
dead in trespasses and sins, with nothing to commend themselves. Now, I know that sounds harsh. These are sweet little children, but outside of Christ, that is our common state, them and us, each and every one of us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul makes this explicit. Consider your calling, brothers. You, now, this morning, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world. You and me. To shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world. You and me. To shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. You and me. Even things that are not. To bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God chooses things that are not in order that he might be glorified. That's where he works in order to show his glory and might. This means that he is at work in you. And that he is about to do a mighty work in these kids. He has done these things and chosen these children to glorify himself. The promises that God makes to them today are just as true for you. Do you doubt? Are you afraid? Have you broken promises? Do you feel barren? That's why Jesus came. Jesus and his empty tomb are God's faithfulness in the face of your faithlessness. They are his promise kept in the face of your promise broken. In Christ, God gives you the faithfulness that you lack. He creates inspires and sustains you in the life which you on your own are incapable of living. He makes of us a new version of a great nation that is a faithful church. He does this, and he does it all from nothing. Nothing, death, and sin are his raw materials. And if you are baptized into this Family of Christ already, say the Apostles' Creed with us in a few minutes. Reaffirm that faith. If you're not, come talk to me after church. As I say each week, I would love nothing more. Nothing would give me more joy than to welcome you into God's family and to make God's promises to you concrete in water, wine, and bread. We would love to welcome you or re-welcome you into God's family, to his table. All of this is given to you. For free, death, barrenness, and sin are all God needs to make for himself a new people, a new creation. This is our announcement to the world. It will be our announcement to these kids this morning, and it is our announcement to you.
Go under the water and admit that on your own you are dead. But then come up alive again, made new on account of God's faithfulness revealed in Jesus Christ. Live in him forever. Amen.